You're listening to the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, sharing our passion for the wonders of the ocean. La mer qu'on voit danser le long. Thank you for joining us for Blue Marine Foundation's podcast. In this series, we delve deeper into the experiences of some of the extraordinary people who won our 2021 Ocean Awards. These awards, run in partnership with Boat International, recognize individuals, community groups, organizations and businesses that have made significant contributions to the health of the marine environment, to the sustainable management of marine resources, or to public engagement with our oceans. We owe enormous thanks to the award's generous supporters, the Fishmongers Company and Crystal Caviar. We're delighted to welcome Sasha Bonser from Boat International, who caught up with our Innovation Award winner, Chris Wilcox, from CSIRO, that is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, based in Australia. One of the greatest challenges for marine conservation is effective and comprehensive monitoring of huge areas of open ocean, detecting activities that are harming the marine environment. Many have argued that it is simply impossible to do so. Not to be dissuaded, our winner, Chris and his team, developed not one, but two ingenious solutions to this seemingly intractable problem, one involving ship's radar and the other one involving hydrophones. Between them, these innovations could revolutionise how we monitor our oceans. Over to Sasha, who found out more. The Innovation Award recognises the person or group that has introduced innovative measures to reduce stress on our oceans. This year's winner is Dr Chris Wilcox, Principal Research Assistant at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, otherwise known as the CSIRO. Hello and congratulations, Chris. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's really. I'm really excited. It's really. I'm, we're really excited to have to have won the award. So, yeah. Thanks. Well, we're really excited too, Chris. And before we go any further, could you explain a little bit about what the CSIRO does? We're the national research organization for Australia for the federal government, um, and essentially we work on, as the name says research uh, for um, basically public good and to support industry. And so there's uh, about 5,000 of us and we're spread across basically every major sector of, of government and, um, and of industry. And so my piece of the organization works on uh, atmospheric and oceanographic issues. So fisheries, uh, climate change, um, sustainable harvesting of marine species, marine conservation, uh, all those sorts of things. We do a little bit of weather forecasting. Um, and my small piece of the organization uh, works on um, sustainable fisheries and illegal fishing. Got it. And so you have won this year's Innovation Award for two initiatives. The first is the invention of an affordable radar that can detect dark vessels at sea, which fish illegally, among other things. The second is the development of hydrophones that can be trained to act as underwater microphones and pinpoint illegal fishers and poachers who use explosives and other means. I, I just want to recognize at the outset, like, 
uh, I, I'm up by name for the award, but it's actually my team that's done all the work. So there's two, two teams of people that work in my group, uh, one that works on the hydrophone work and one that works on the radar work. Um, so we're, we're actually a group effort. Uh, I'd be nowhere without them. So Chris, let's talk about the radars first. Can you explain a little bit about the issue of dark vessels? So the radar idea um, really came out of some discussions, essentially with the Indonesian fisheries ministry, who we work pretty closely with. Um, we have a long-standing uh, cooperation with them, trying to help them address uh, illegal fishing. Um, they historically have ha had a fairly significant problem. And it's a, it's a global problem. Um, it goes everything from, it covers everything from, you know, sort of high seas pirates that you once in a while see in the media, all the way down to, you know, just people breaking minor rules, even recreational fishers. Um, so it's, it's quite a widespread of issues. The, the radar idea really came from the fact that a lot of the agencies charged with this sort of, addressing this sort of problem, struggle with uh, getting access to data. Um, so uh, militaries around the world have satellites that track what vessels at sea are doing, um, but that information is all classified. Fisheries agencies are civilian agencies, so they can't get access to that. So they often have to go to the commercial market and buy satellite radar and other things um, in order to track where vessels are. And, and that poses a real problem for them because of cost. So radar data from satellites obviously is very expensive. So we had the idea that, well, there's all these ships running around the ocean and they all have navigation radars so they can avoid bumping into each other. Um, really, if we just made a little data logger that sat on the side of those ships' radars and if they were willing to volunteer, we could basically just harvest the data off their radars and then assemble that up into something that would be usable across all the vessels and provide that to countries. And so basically that's what we've started doing. And what it means is uh, a country like Ghana, um, who has fishing vessels operating in its waters, can actually use its own fishing vessels or their, or their kind of commercial shipping vessels or even recreational vessels, and, and basically use those as sensor platforms at sea. And so for a few hundred bucks, um, they can basically have radars running around the place. And so instead of paying, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for a small postage stamp satellite image, um, they can basically just use their domestic fleets um, to do the same thing at no cost. So a dark vessel actually ranges from, you know, pirates right down to a little fishing boat somewhere in the middle of the yeah, ocean. Yeah, yeah. So the, the number of vessels that actually have tracking systems on them in, in the world is actually very small. There's really only kind of two groups of vessels. So one is the big cargo ships. They all have one uh, tracking system on them. It's really designed so those ships can talk to each other so they don't smash into each other, right? So they all transmit their position. That's called the AIS. And then fisheries agencies put... Uh, satellite tracking systems on some fishing vessels that's called VMS and it tracks where the vessels are but that's only for really big industrial vessels so if you come to a country like Australia uh, we do have tracking systems on the big commercial vessels but commercial fishing vessels but all of the medium-sized and small ones don't 
and none of the recreational vessels do. And if you go to a country like Indonesia, they've got a half a million fishing vessels. 5,000 of those have tracking systems, the really big ones, and all the other 495,000 vessels basically have no tracking system. So you have to use radar or something like that to figure out even where they go, what they're doing. So even something as, as simple, not necessarily chasing uh, illegal behavior, but just understanding where people fish and what the pressure on the environment is for those 495,000 vessels, you need some way to measure that. And so this is a, basically an inexpensive way to measure that. And it's a really stupid question, Chris, but as a sort of radar dinosaur. So your, your radars, are, you don't have to have a tracking system to be picked up by the radar, obviously. Yeah. So then you pick up everything in the vicinity, these radars, or is there a, a sort yeah. of range? Or? Uh, yeah, they have a range. Um, it's determined in part by the curvature of the Earth. So radar doesn't see over the horizon generally. Um, and so that depends on how high the radar is off the, off the water. Um, on the ship you're talking about, and then also how powerful the radar is. Um, so to give you an example, though, the first ship we used was our national research ship. It has a range of about 300 kilometers, and that's the radius. So the, the width is both sides of that, 600 kilometers. So when that ship steams, say, across the Mediterranean, for instance, it's going to reach a third of the Mediterranean. I don't know offhand how wide the Mediterranean is, but just to take a guess, a couple thousand kilometers, um, it, would, it would sweep a third of the Mediterranean, say, as it's passing by, going east-west. So there's thousands and thousands of container ships, car carriers, other kinds of cargo ships, ferries, commercial fishing vessels. Basically, every vessel of any size has a radar. Uh, your, your kind of rinky-dink little radar on top of a recreational vessel reaches about 30 kilometers. Uh, a big one on a container ship will be similar to our research vessel. It'll be several hundred kilometers uh, in radius. And it'll pick up anything that uh, is uh, sort of returns the radar signal from the surface. So radar is basically firing microwaves, like your microwave oven. And the system basically fires those microwaves out and then they bounce off something and they come back. And it uses that bouncing back to measure that there's something out there. And so anything that's sticking up above the surface um, will, will return a, a signal. The bigger the thing, the stronger the signal, the further away you can see it. But even little, even little objects in the water, you know, say a floating container, we would see. And how, how sort of up and running are your radars? Are they being used quite a lot at the, already or? So we, we have one, we've had one running on our research vessel as our first pilot. That's been running for three years. We have one on a big super yacht as a trial here. Um, that's now been running for six months. We have one on a vessel that's based out of South Africa that goes up the Indian coast. Uh, Indian Ocean Coast, so it goes essentially from Kenya to South Africa. Um, that's uh, been running for a bit. Uh, we have one on a national survey vessel that covers all of Indonesia. It's their national fishery survey, survey vessel. That's been running for about a year. Um, so we've got about five that have been running kind of long term, and we've now worked out all the kinks. Um, and now we're at this 
uh, stage of scaling. So we're just about to sign uh, a collaboration with um, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority to put it on all of their patrol vessels. And they will use that to basically measure where users are in the marine park. Um, we're about to put it on all of the fisheries patrol vessels in Indonesia. Um, so that will allow them to understand, to basically build a picture as those patrol ships move around about where users are there. Um, and then we're talking to a couple big industrial shipping companies, one container ship company and one car carrier company. So they each have, you know, several hundred vessels that are moving around the ocean all the time. And that will mean essentially we'll have global real-time coverage. So we'll have radar everywhere all the time. Did you ever hear about the MH370? It was a Malaysian Airlines plane and it crashed in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And there was a, a huge search for it, right? So if we have this radar system running, we can just go into our database from all the container ships that have passed through that area and look to see if any of them have picked up a stationary metal object in the Indian and for no money. You know, they're just volunteering the data. It's fascinating. And is it does it come under your remit um, as to how you collect this data and, and globalize it and centralize it? Or does it not matter? Everyone deals with their own remit of data, as it were. So what we're doing, um, obviously, there are sensitivities from the different providers. You know, you're sailing a ship somewhere. You might have some issues with what radar, who sees it, things like that. So for each provider, we sign a data sharing agreement and they get to specify what they're willing to share and with who and things like that. Then all the data goes up into a big database. So we keep track of basically who the providers are and who we're giving the data to. And, and we essentially kind of handshake the arrangements so everyone's happy with what they're getting. It's, it's really, it, it's fascinating and presumably the sort of the scale of it and scope of it is is infinite. But what's your sort of hope if it, if it was if you could sort of fantasize about the best best scenario outcome? What would it be? I'd like to see us sort of stand up a global database that has essentially real time or near real time data coming into it. And so for me, that would mean that safety at sea issues like the, the airplane crash, you know, we could provide information to them really at very, very little cost, you know, just essentially the maintenance of the system. Interestingly, one of the, one of the issues for high seas illegal fishing is the question of hot pursuit. So if, you, if you're a country and you're chasing a vessel that's made a violation, you have to keep them in sight all the time in order to be able to um, in order to be able to interdict them. So if you lose sight of them, then they're gone. And even if you find them again, you can't demonstrate that, it, that you had them in sight the whole time. So for cases like that, we could actually serve up all this radar data from ships passing around so that even if they can't keep them in sight, they can keep them in radar contact and they know it's the same vessel. Um, and so I think there's a bunch of applications like that. You know, think about Somali pirates. You're sailing a container ship. We can give you the radar data from the container ship that's two hours ahead of you. And you can see if there was a vessel sitting in your path that looks suspicious. Um, so I think, you know, it's essentially about democratizing access to this sort of data, um, which up to now 
has been prohibitively expensive, you know, for lots of people with legitimate interests in, in having access to it. Well, it's wonderful, Chris, and, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about it and its potential. Um, but you also won an award for your um, other hat, as it were, um, which, is, which is the hydrophones. So first of all, can you explain what a hydrophone is? So the most simple way to think of it is essentially an underwater microphone with a small computer that processes the sound. And then it has a satellite communication system so that it can then send a message that says, hey, I heard something of interest. And that could be an explosion from bomb fishing. It could be a vessel that's in an area where it shouldn't be. It could be someone turning on an air compressor, basically uh, diving in a way that they, that they shouldn't. One of the nice things about sound and water is uh, sound travels very far in water. I mean, whales can call to each other from across ocean basins. So everything you do in the water makes sound um, and those sounds can be used to identify activities of interest. And the work started out because uh, up in Southeast Asia where we were working, uh, there's a real problem with people using explosives uh, for fishing. And they do that because the fisheries in some cases are depleted and so, it's a way to catch essentially everything that's there. Can you explain how the explosives work? What do they do? Uh, so it's the same kind of bombs that people use for blown up buildings and stuff. It's basically made from fertilizer and they take a 750 mil beer bottle and they mix up the fertilizer and the other ingredients, pack it in the beer bottle, make a homemade wick and literally light it and throw it over the side of the boat. And so it's dangerous to the fishermen um, it's obviously illegal and it's dangerous. To, it's d very damaging to the habitat because when the bomb goes off, it makes a big concussion and it's often used where there are corals and things. Um, so it destroys the coral, which has a very long recovery time. Um, and, you know, it's linked to lots of other issues. People who are making bombs for bomb fishing are basically in the same supply chain as people who are making bombs for other things. Um, so we, we realized one of, one of the real problems is in order to stop people bomb fishing, you have to turn up relatively soon when the bomb goes off. You know, you can hear it locally, but you can't, you know, you, it's very hard to detect. And so we started thinking about using the underwater sound from the explosion um, to measure where bombs are going off and to help the authorities in Indonesia then be able to dispatch patrol boats. And, and that was the sort of start of working on underwater sound, um, was thinking about the bomb fishing. But obviously you can hear vessel engines, compressors, all kinds of other things. And you can probably even distinguish the behavior of vessels. So for instance, when a long liner, um, which uses a big, long, you know, 40, 100 kilometer long fishing line with lots of hooks on it to catch, to catch fish, um, often tuna, when they're hauling that gear, they basically um, winch themselves up the gear and, and take the fish off. And so they have a very, very particular sound of their engine when they're doing that because they pull the gear tight and then they winch themselves along and then they pull it tight and they winch themselves along. So even behaviors like that um, are potentially distinguishable from underwater sound. And so what we started working on is um, 
basically building uh, a system that you can uh, record the sound, analyze the sound, but also be able to get uh, an, an alert in real time um, to an authority that might be able to do something. So we, um, we basically uh, make a little kit. It's essentially a underwater sound surveillance in a box. Um, so we literally uh, box up sort of three to five hydrophones and we provide them to patrol vessels. Um, and so they get a box that's got the equipment in it um, and they then can use those uh, as part of their kind of um, patrolling and surveillance activities. So some of the hydrophones actually have real-time communications via satellite. So bomb goes off, hydrophone detects it, hydrophone processes on board, uh, then sends an alert over a satellite, comes to the skipper on the vessel to his mobile phone or his satellite communication system or to the national control. I was just going to ask, are the kits, are they always on board or you can't leave them underwater and sort of scatter them around so they're... Oh, yeah. No, you can leave them underwater. For uh, We have one that's down in South Georgia, um, the British uh, Antarctic Island, that's been there for a year. So most of our most of our work is really aimed at having them deployed for a few months. And really the idea is that it becomes a, a piece of equipment that a patrol vessel basically takes with it. So we've been deploying them um, South Africa, um, the Antarctic. We've used them a bit on the northern border here in Australia with the Indonesians um, in Niue in the Pacific. And generally people are trying to either understand illegal activity, border crossing, bomb explosions, foreign vessels, or they're just trying to measure how many people are using an area. And, and you presumably manufacture them yourselves? We took an off-the-shelf system that's used for listening for whales, and then we reprogrammed it, um, and then we built a communications system for it and all the analysis uh, components. So um, we saved a little bit of time by, by turning a whale listening system into a real-time uh, surveillance system. <laughs> That's fantastic. And what are the numbers at the moment? What numbers are you talking in terms of how many are up and running and being used? Yeah, so so we have a fleet of about 30 um, and we have about eight real-time units. And um, so we've sort of been, like I said before, we're, we're a public good institution. We've been interested in like how we make this stuff available, right? Um, to, to especially developing countries that are struggling with illegal fishing problems. So what we've done is we've set up essentially a lending library. And so you, you uh, tell us you have a problem and you're getting ready to have an enforcement campaign. Um, you request the equipment, we ship the equipment to you, you cover the shipping, we help you use the equipment. And then when you're done, you ship it back. Um, and so eventually we'll probably set it up so people can buy their own um, and find a commercial producer. But so far, you know, we've been basically producing them ourselves. Um, and, and essentially working in partnership with enforcement agencies that want to use them. And Chris, I love the idea of sort of innovators, of which obviously you're, you're a leading one and, and the sense that one day there's a sort of, you know, mad professor eureka moment. What, what, did, you have that, did you have that moment either with your radars or with your hydrophones? Was there a moment when one of your team or you thought, oh, my God, the potential for this is huge? Yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, my eureka moments often come in the shower in the morning. 
I don't know, your brain's kind of relaxed then and you're just like, you know, drifting around as you're using soap and stuff. Um, so the radar stuff was, came at one of those moments. And I think one of the really satisfying things is now a couple of years down the road to actually be talking to these big major shipping companies that have hundreds and hundreds of vessels and actually see that now go from, you know, a kooky idea one morning in the shower that we like the little team managed to make work to like something that might be global scale. Um, you know, that's pretty satisfying. I have lots of kooky ideas that don't work. I'm sure you do. <laughs> How big is your team out of interest? We're about we're about 25 people. Um, so it's a mix of statisticians, engineers, fisheries biologists, spatial analysts. Um, yeah. And, and just the last question on funding, Chris, on, on both of them, you've touched on it, obviously, but is your hope that I mean, you're, you're a government-funded organization, so obviously if this really takes off, um, will companies just, all the money will sort of generate itself for more and more and more, or a company takes it off your hands, or how, how do you see that working in the future for both? I don't know. That, that, that's sort of an interesting journey, uh, I guess. I have a personal ethical view about kind of how that should work. Uh, you know, I feel like, I got into science to do good things for the for the public, really. And so <clears throat> on a personal level, um, I'd like to see an end to illegal fishing. I'd like to see people able to find lost airplanes at sea. Um, you know, obviously those efforts require money in the long term. Right now we're a mix of government funding and grants. Um, and so that's allowed us some freedom to develop these things. Um, so in the end, you know, we will probably have to figure out some commercial arrangements for it to last indefinitely. But I'm, I'm very much of the view that these are public good uh, investments. And so the whole idea behind that is to increase essentially access to information, um, you know, so that a country like Ghana, uh, you know, can reasonably manage its marine resources and, and have a sustainable marine industry well once again chris thank you so much for your time and a huge congratulations for um winning this award and i'm i'm really intrigued as to how both of these projects are going to pan out so we'll be we'll yeah. be following it and we'll hopefully revisit it at some stage in the future thank you yeah thank you very much and we really hope that all the people that read about it um end up getting in touch we're, we're super interested in seeing the stuff take off. So, thanks a lot. La mer, qu'on voit danser.